Welcome to Decoding Hate. I'm your host, Katie Pentney. In this six-part series, we're going to explore how artificial intelligence is being used to combat hate speech online, and we're going to look at the challenges this poses to freedom of expression. For many around the world, internet platforms have become their main source for news. It's where individuals go to express themselves, engage with friends, and learn about the world around them. Google, Facebook, and Twitter are the new gatekeepers, overseeing how we receive and share information and ideas. Content moderation by private platforms raises serious concerns for freedom of expression. We are going to spotlight some of these concerns over the course of this series, which is funded by the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe's Representative on Freedom of the Media. Let's start with the basics, like what freedom of expression is and what it requires. I sat down with Nanny Jensen Reventlow to discuss the evolution of freedom of expression. Nanny is a leading human rights lawyer and founder of Digital Freedom Fund. She's also an adjunct professor at the University of Oxford and a lecturer at Columbia Law School. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Before we turn to your work at the Digital Freedom Fund, I want to go back a ways and talk about some of the underpinnings of freedom of expression, what it means and where it came from. It was first recognized at the international and regional levels in the 1940s and 50s. And it was recognized alongside some other pretty pivotal rights, including the right to life, the right to be free from torture, protections against discrimination. Why does freedom of expression belong alongside those other rights? Why does it belong on that list? The the right to freedom of expression can be considered as a key right, um, as not only I, but, but many like to frame it, as it unlocks the enjoyment of many other human rights. It supports, for example, the right to protest, right to education, but it also has a crucial role in holding power to account and facilitating media freedom. Um, So those are kind of like the bigger societal interests that are connected uh, with the right. But there are also personal aspects to it, such as self-fulfillment, human dignity. So in that sense, it kind of like, you know, fits into this bigger picture. When you think about democratic societies in which people can live freely and have free debates about matters of public interest, about the things that concern us all as members of a society, Um, It plays a crucial role in in pursuing truth, making sure that there's a vibrant public discourse, basically all the the things that make a democracy function, in essence. Well, and so you talked about some of the rationales, the pursuit of truth and making democracy work. But freedom of expression is viewed quite differently depending on where you are in the world. And so at one end of the spectrum, you have the US, which takes a very hands-off approach to expression, but then you have a place like Germany, which has imposed not only restrictions about how you can convey speech, but also on the contents of speech itself. So can you explain a little bit what those differences really are and and where they came from? I guess the the main way that I would look at at the differences is is kind of the starting point from which you look at expression. And I actually would contrast the US with the rest of the world because the framework that we have in Europe is is very similar also to the one that uh, applies under, for example, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, the ICCPR. In both the European and the European Convention and in the um, ICCPR, 
we have a set of criteria to evaluate whether it's permissible to restrict the right to freedom of expression. There's a, there's a three-part test for that. In order for a state to be allowed to restrict someone's right to freedom of speech, this restriction has to be provided by law. It has to pursue a legitimate aim. And those are actually usually enumerated. Um, this entails respect for the rights or reputations of others, protection of national security, public order, but also protection of public health or morals. And the third part of the test is that it has to be necessary in a democratic society, as it's framed in the European Convention on Human Rights. Uh, this is a cumulative test. So only if all of those criteria are met, a restriction to the right to freedom of expression can be considered permissible. It doesn't actually say in the European Convention that states should prohibit any form of expression, as is the case under the ICCPR, and I'll, I'll come to that in a second. The First Amendment approach is a little bit different. There, they really focus on what type of restriction is being placed on speech, and then they make a difference between content-based restrictions, uh, which is basically about like what the speech is about, and content-neutral restrictions, so that are kind of like more quote-unquote objective. And that entails a different level of scrutiny. However, both of those systems in the end kind of come down to the same thing in the sense that similar types of speech would be allowed and similar types of restrictions would, would be permissible. The main kind of like difference that you see between the US and the rest of the world is when you look at issues such as hate speech. This is something that under the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, states actually have an obligation to legislate against, not so much under the European Convention, but in practice, its case law kind of does point into a, a, to a similar direction. But this has actually left a broader scope for offensive speech in, in the US than would be permissible elsewhere in the world. Handyside in the United Kingdom was the European Court of Human Rights' first judgment concerning freedom of expression, way back in 1976. And the court started with a bang. Mr. Handyside published The Little Red School Book, which aimed to educate teens about sex. The books were seized and he was charged for possession of obscene materials for profit. Mr. Handyside appealed his conviction on the basis that it violated his right to freedom of expression. From very early on, the court wanted to make clear that freedom of expression isn't just about allowing ideas that we like, but it also protects information and ideas that might offend, shock, or disturb. And so why was that so important for the court to do, and why has that been so foundational ever since? Yeah, that's the, the, the finding in, in, in Handyside uh, versus the United Kingdom, which makes a really clear link to our ability to have a robust debate, right, in democratic society. and. It, it gets referred to quite often also in subsequent case law. And I think that there's a beautiful other phrase from it, that those are the demands of pluralism, tolerance, and broad-mindedness. And the court often says that without which there is no democratic society. I always kind of like to <laughs> refer to, to, to this finding of the court in a way is like, you know, if, you, if your debate gets heated, you might not always be able to frame everything in the most delicate terms. You should be able to vehemently disagree with each other and, you know, Perhaps in the heat of the moment, you might not be as nuanced or as delicate as you might want to <laughs> be. And it's very important that we can have those types of debates. Actually, I would like to argue that it's 
all the more important to have those types of heated debates rather than the alternatives, uh, which might actually be resorting to violence, for example. It's, it's an important safety valve, I think, that we have ways to express ourselves that kind of convey our views in a passionate way without having to resort to, to other means to kind of like have it out. Again, we come back to this role of free speech in, our, in, in, a, in a democracy, right? The ability and the possibility and, and, and the freedom to strongly disagree with each other disagree with each, other, with each other in strong terms also, in order to have that kind of clash of ideas, which should in the end help us all along. Right. And of course, I, I think it also comes down to this notion that what might offend or shock or disturb me may very well differ from what might offend, shock or disturb you, right? And so I think it's also, it seems like it is trying to recognize that we have different bandwidths, I suppose might be a a way to explain it, but that, you know, we, we're reluctant to have one person decide what can make its way out into the public discourse and, and what is suitable for debate. Absolutely. Also, because those views will evolve over time, right? So something that might have been super shocking in the 50s, hardly anyone would raise an eyebrow over it now. <laughs> so those things change. And let's talk about some of the restrictions which you've already touched on and the three-part test which you've laid out. So states are allowed to impose certain limits to freedom of expression, including to protect the rights of others. So can you tell us what does that mean in practice? Well, the, the, the most uh, kind of traditional framing of, of kind of this battling of rights that you come across in freedom of expression case law is, is when it comes to the right to privacy. This often comes into play in issues of, of media coverage. Each country kind of has their own as their own celebrities or, or royals, etc. For example, just to give an example that you know might speak to the imagination of which the, the tabloids like to cover you know what they're up to including with photos and and everything and on a regular basis those celebrities would sue the magazines or the reporters to claim that their right to privacy has been violated and there often is a an interesting discussion in in, in that context as to whether or not the issues that are being covered are a matter of public interest or as it's also sometimes said something that interests the public, which is not quite the same. And that has yielded some very interesting and sometimes also juicy <laughs> case law. But that is that is a very traditional kind of situation in which two interests have to be weighed or have to be balanced against each other, the right to privacy on the one hand and the right to freedom of expression on the other hand. And in that context also, the right of the general public to, to have access to certain information. And so then the last of the elements um, is this notion of negative obligations and positive obligations. The court, the European Court of Human Rights has said that states have negative obligations, which you know might include, for instance, refraining from censorship, which is something that we still see in lots of places, including famously in, in Turkey with its Wikipedia ban. But they've also said that states have positive obligations in respect of expression. And so what does that entail? There's, there are a number of layers when you look at the, at the positive obligations of states when it comes to freedom of expression. A very classical case in that regard is the case of Dink versus Turkey, which basically concerns the right to life. So in that case, a journalist, Fira Dink, was a very outspoken journalist, and he ended up being murdered for his writings. And even though the Turkish authorities were aware that there was an assassination plot going on, they didn't act on that information. So they failed to protect his right to life. 
thereby violating his right to freedom of expression, and then also they failed to properly investigate. So that is a very extreme example, but of course a fundamental as it, as it concerns to the right to life, and particularly when it uh, comes to, to journalists. The Dink Judgment, which Nanny just referred to, has largely flown under the radar since it was released in 2010, but its impacts could be far-reaching. The European Court of Human Rights held that states have an obligation to create a favorable environment for participation in public debate. What this actually means in practice remains a question mark. But there are other positive obligations too, as Nanny went on to explain. There's slightly more general obligation for for states to provide for a pluralistic media landscape. So what you can think about there is, for example, uh, licensing schemes. So this is about making sure that journalistic outlets of different political leanings, different uh, opinions, are equally able to get airtime, for example, to broadcast. But then there are also kind of like slightly kind of lower level examples that have to do with uh, labor law context, for example. Um, So there was a a judgment from the European Court of Human Rights that basically said that uh, a journalist that was, uh, who was dismissed after making critical comments about his employer, that that was a violation of his right to freedom of expression. So it it can actually be be pretty far-fetching. Freedom of expression was recognized at the international and regional levels in the 1940s and 50s, more than three decades before the advent of the internet. I asked Nanny how the internet has changed the game for freedom of expression. So it it depends a little bit on on the the angle from which I look at it, (laughs) to be quite honest. So one of the things that actually surprised me most when I was still working at Media Legal Defense Initiative, where we were defending journalists and bloggers around the world, was actually how not super relevant at the time (laughs) the internet was for the types of cases that we ended up defending. Because a lot of the journalists in the parts of the world where we were working were broadcasting on local radio stations, they were publishing in local newspapers, and they were being prosecuted for like really old school defamation charges and, and, and things like that. Where it did come into play very much were in settings where it wasn't possible to publish in any other way than through the internet. So at least it wasn't possible to publish dissenting views through any other means than by publishing online. So that was a very specific kind of perspective. So I think that the view from, you know, whether or not you're in Northwest Europe or in North America versus elsewhere in the world differs quite a bit in that regard. The internet has has provided like platforms for people who would otherwise, for example, have more difficulty getting their voices heard and getting their uh, opinions and views out in circulation. But at the same time, and it's particularly in the context of the rise of of the big internet platforms on which we tend to exchange most of our information at the moment, that these spaces aren't always conducive to a pluralistic debate in the sense that, you know, the issues of, of online threats, online harassment, online hate speech also tend to push people out of the conversation. And that actually makes the debate rather than kind of like, you know, the internet broadening debate and making it more accessible for, for everyone, it actually restricts it. So you were on a panel at Fem City looking at gendered hate speech online, and it was in Dutch. And as I mentioned to you, my Dutch is a work in progress. Um, 
the translation said that your remark was about a democratic deficit. Yeah, if you if you look at the idea that in order for a democratic society to properly function, we need to have pluralistic debate in which everyone is engaged. If we then end up with a setting in which, you know, if we, if we just look at, at gender dimensions, like at least half of the population will be less free to be involved in, in those debates. And then we're not even touching upon issues of racialized and marginalized groups or, or the intersectional aspects of, of, of those things. You're basically creating a setting in which it's unsafe or uncomfortable for a really big group of our society, but part of our society to participate in that debate. So I, in my view, you can then no longer really speak of a truly democratic process because it's exclusive. It's excluding certain participants. Beyond the risks for democratic discourse, the digital era poses several other challenges for freedom of expression. The first is where exactly internet platforms fit into the mix. Freedom of expression was traditionally something between the state and the individual. The state couldn't restrict an individual's freedom of expression. But now, as you've mentioned, we have the rise of these really big companies and some smaller ones, Facebook and Google and, and Twitter and even Reddit. Where do they fit into that mix? Are they more like governments that owe individuals the right to express themselves, or are they more like individuals who can claim a right of expression as against the state? This is the million dollar question, right? Because right now, these companies kind of operate in an interesting twilight zone where they end up being the biggest facilitators, I guess, at the moment of public debate. And particularly at the moment when, you know, we're regularly confined to, to our houses and actually like assembly <laughs> takes place virtually uh, as well. Yet they are not under the same kind of direct obligations as states are, right, in kind of protecting and providing for for a, a good space to enjoy human rights, including the right to freedom of expression. Of course, the issue of kind of like how to deal with human rights in the context of big companies is, is not new, right? This also applied to big corporations, etc., more generally outside of the internet context. And David Kay has done a really nice job so that the former uh, UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression has, a re has done a really nice job in kind of like reframing how, for example, the UN guiding principles on, on business and human rights should apply to, to these platforms. In the end, the kind of the summary of all of that is, is that they should adhere to human rights standards. So that should be part and parcel of the way that they operate, the policies that they set up, it should be guiding their conduct. It should allow for sufficient transparency, right, so that people actually know what's going on inside <laughs> the, the content moderation rooms and also provide for remedies so that people can actually, that people actually know where to go to and how to address issues when they feel that they, for example, their content has been taken down or has been, has been censored in some shape or form. But we're still very, very, very far removed from any of that being operationalized in a way that makes it credible that there's real will <laughs> to abide by the international human rights framework by those companies. I've heard the internet described as in its teenage years. And if you think about it in that way, I think the rise of social media is probably in kind of its infancy, right? If, if those are the sort of terms we're working with. So I think there's still a lot of room to grow and to figure out 
where these companies fit and what obligations they owe. Uh, this is difficult because I, I don't have children, so I don't know how to say like, but <laughs> how to say this in a, in a, in a responsible way. But I, I believe <laughs> that one of the things about like raising kids into responsible adults is also setting ground rules. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I think that there's a fine balance between like assuming that it will all work out and it will sort itself out in due course and also making sure that we deal with it with sufficient urgency to actually avoid things going terribly wrong, in essence. A second issue is whether existing rights frameworks offer sufficient protections for our new digital era. Digital Freedom Fund is looking into this very question with its Future Proofing Digital Rights Project, which seeks to map out key issues on the horizon. The idea of actually kind of like trying to look a little bit further ahead in the future actually came from the realization that we don't really do that very often. Uh, we're all very much involved in, in, in the battles that we're fighting on a day-to-day -day basis, overwhelmed <laughs> by, by the digital rights challenges that we get thrown at us. And what is super helpful every now and then is to kind of like, you know, lift your gaze a little bit and look a bit further down on the horizon, like what's what's coming further down the line, and then also very importantly, what can we do now in order to be ready by the time that future materializes itself, right? And we try to kind of like do a visioning exercise basically about the Universal Declaration um, of, of Human Rights as it would look X years in the future. And the interesting thing was actually that, that we've, we found also to kind of like see what we need, what we need different rights in the future. And, and overall, uh, interestingly enough, we kind of found that the Universal Declaration still pretty much covers <laughs> at least what we can foresee right now. You know, the rights might be interpreted differently, you know, this, even though the right to freedom of expression is, is, is framed as being regardless of frontiers and it's means neutral also. So it's, it's kind of future proof in that regard. But there's a lot of things going on at the moment that weren't foreseeable uh, at the time that the declaration was drafted. But never, nevertheless, we, we did kind of like overall feel that the framework that we have would be pretty adequate going forward, with the exception that we were wondering if there should be something along the lines of a right to disconnect <laughs> in the idea that, you know, as our, as our lives continue to kind of like move more and more into the, to the online context and the digital context, we have to kind of, we, ha we are almost forced to engage with technology, right? And we're... We're increasingly forced to engage with technology in so many aspects of our lives. And is there a right to, to disconnect? And I, I think that's an interesting question because it, it would be kind of a right that would cut across a number of other specific human rights. So, for example, if access to the medical system goes through some electronic patient idea, would you have a right to kind of withdraw from that and say, like, I don't want to be online. I don't want to be in your database. I still want to be able to see a doctor, but I don't want to participate in your system. And we're seeing this actually, you know, pretty uh, close right now, for example, in the UK with the universal credit system, right? Your right to access social benefits. You have to engage with technology in order to be able to get, you know, the support, the state support that you have a right to receiving. So 
there's a bit of a question like, you know, would that be something that you'd have to read into the different individual rights or is it a standalone right? So that was, that was actually one of the more interesting conversations that we had when we were doing that workshop. A third challenge is who gets to be in the room where these discussions are happening, where decisions are being made. Digital Freedom Fund has initiated a process aiming to decolonize digital rights. So can you explain what that initiative is looking to do? Because I think it's a really interesting one, especially alongside you know this notion of future-proofing digital rights. This is a process we've set in motion together with EDRI, European Digital Rights. And it looks basically at who are we seeing and who are we not seeing in the room when we're having conversations about digital rights in Europe at the moment. The initiative very much came from our, from our own observations at basically whichever meeting <laughs> where digital rights were being discussed and, and kind of like looking around the room and seeing that this was overall a very homogenous field of actors. Overall white, uh, male, able-bodied, cisgender, uh, etc. And the kind of the realization that if a part of civil society is supposed to be looking out for the digital rights of everyone in that society, it needs to reflect society as a whole, because otherwise it inevitably has has blind spots, right? So we believe that uh, the digital rights field can do better to ensure that the digital rights of marginalized groups are upheld, particularly because, you know, digital technologies have the potential to not only reproduce, but also amplify mm-hmm. existing forms of oppression, right? Racism, sexism, ableism, homophobia, transphobia, etc. And by a decolonizing process, we, we are talking about a process that acknowledges that those types of oppression have their roots in the history of, of domination and colonization, and that they're maintained by structural forces. So we're intentionally not using the words diversity, equity, and inclusion, because that basically talks about including people in a system which we think is fundamentally flawed from a structural perspective. So... We're talking about something that is going to take a little while (laughs) to change (laughs) because structural changes is never easy. We started in March of this year, this year being 2020 when we're still talking, to kind of like talk to those groups that we're currently not seeing in the room, to ask what work they're doing with regard to digital rights, how their experience has been working with digital rights organizations, but also bigger picture questions, right? You know, what could a decolonized digital rights field look like and what could it achieve? And we've started asking since this summer the mirror questions to the digital rights organizations, asking what have you been doing or what are you working on when it comes to race, social and economic justice? And again, like what could a decolonized digital rights field look like and what could it achieve? And we we, we had, uh, two weeks ago, we had our first gathering in which we had organizations from all these different constituencies come together to kind of collectively look at what could this future look like and what would be different 20 years from now, right? If we look at 2040, what what, what would we be reading in a newspaper and, and what would the digital rights field have, have worked on? So our next step now is to go through a design process to come to a program to initiate a decolonizing process. This all sounds very complicated perhaps and if you're eager for change, you know, you'd rather see stuff happening tomorrow. But we want to make sure that we don't kind of enter into this from our own preconceived notions of what change should look like, but rather make sure that it really comes from 
all of those who should be in the room right now, but aren't. So that is maybe a slightly long answer to your question, <laughs> but that is where we are. The fourth dilemma of this digital age is the use of algorithms and how they impact freedom of expression. And, and so one of the issues that was flagged in future-proofing digital rights, which is going to be very relevant for the podcast, is algorithms and their role in dictating our rights. And I know that you have, uh, you and Digital Freedom Fund have helped in some strategic cases around algorithms. Can you explain in, in broad strokes what the concerns are about algorithms and how they may impact our rights online? One of the big issues there is, is, is lack of transparency. And I mean that in two different ways. One is lack of transparency as to when algorithmic decision-making is being deployed in the first place. So when governments, businesses, etc., are making decisions that have an impact on our lives, how do we know if some form of algorithmic decision-making has fed into the outcome of that decision? And the other thing is the question of like, how does, you know, the machinery, if I can put it that way, actually work? On which criteria are decisions being made? Is the decision making, can it be qualified as fair? Um, if you don't actually know like what the reasons behind the decision are, it's very difficult for you to challenge it, to question its fairness, basically to kind of enforce your rights. Uh, but like going back to the first point that I that I mentioned, if you don't know if algorithmic decision making has been involved at all, <laughs> you don't even you don't even know <laughs> what basically happened, right? So transparency, I think, is 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 one of one of the biggest issues and the biggest concerns uh, there. And basically, the fact that the lack of transparency makes it really difficult for people to enforce their human rights. The impact of artificial intelligence on freedom of expression is at the very heart of the SAFE project, initiated by the OSCE representative on freedom of the media last year. I sat down with Denise Wagner, advisor at the RFOM and manager of the SAFE project. Thanks for joining me today and welcome. Hi, Katie. Thank you so much for having me today. Let's start with the office itself. So can you explain for those who might not know the mandate of the representative on freedom of the media? Of course. So maybe just a few words about the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. It's the world's largest regional security organization, comprising of 57 participating states across Europe, Central Asia, um, but also including the United States and Canada. And it is a security organization, but for the OSCE, peace and security are more than the absence of conflict. And so its approach to security is comprehensive. And our, our engagement covers uh, many areas, including to promote uh, a full respect for human rights and fundamental freedoms. Within that, you have the Office of the Representative on Freedom of the Media, which is um, an intergovernmental media freedom watchdog our main task is to provide early warning on violations of media freedom and freedom of expression. And this includes dealing with a broad range of issues. Um, so safety of journalists, for example, and the uh, fight against impunity for crimes committed against them, um, looking into access to information and laws affecting the media, including things like criminal defamation, but also anti-terror legislation. 
Um, we also look at how to tackle issues of disinformation and propaganda and addressing uh, hate speech while respecting freedom of expression. Um, and then uh, broader subjects like how to safeguard media pluralism and supporting media sustainability. And uh, when speaking about all these issues, um, there's always a digital component. The RFOM looks at how um, emerging technologies play a central role in their impact on free speech and media at large, and the impact that this has, which can be both positive and negative. So that leads us right into the SAFE project, which touches on some of these issues that you've you flagged as focus areas for the representative on freedom of the media. But can you explain how the SAFE project, the Spotlight on Artificial Intelligence and Freedom of Expression project came about? Yeah, so I've been advising the RFOM, or the Representative on Freedom of the Media, for a good decade now. And over the years, digital rights issues have crept their way into every aspect of our work. When I started, we spoke about internet freedom. And the, deba the debate among experts was all about enabling access to the internet as a means to uh, spread information and challenge government-imposed media controls, particularly in the sort of traditional media landscape. You know, so it was about how the internet serves as a tool in the struggle for freedom. And at the time, there were many examples. This was the case with the Arab Spring uprisings from Tahrir Square to Zakati Park, um, or the Gezi Park protests in Turkey, and perhaps even with Occupy Wall Street movement. And then in 2013 came the Snowden revelations, and nothing was really ever the same again. Um, it significantly changed the role of governments and companies. And what was once a liberating technology had now become a conduit for surveillance. And several years later, also a tool for electoral manipulation. And so with this sort of uncomfortable reality, we started seeing a discourse in multilateral forums, including the OSCE, on whether human rights apply online as well as offline. And also what kind of regulation or perhaps co-regulation or self-regulation we want to see in order to effectively safeguard our human rights. And on that, um, the RFOM, but also other international organizations such as the UN, the Council of Europe and the European Commission, started working on providing guidance regarding the roles and the responsibilities of tech companies, particularly internet intermediaries, vis-a-vis -vis international human rights obligations and commitments. And of course, importantly, the role of the state in that regard. So we at the RFOM, we see such guidance as imperative because, you know, undoubtedly the regulatory choices that are made today will have a profound impact on the internet ecosystem of tomorrow. And so over the years, uh, this guidance has culminated in a number of projects, including on open journalism, on uh, the safety of journalists online, including um, the protection of women and other marginalized voices and the role and responsibility of internet intermediaries. And all of this, particularly in the context of comprehensive security, meant there was a desperate need to pay special attention to the growing use of machine learning technologies and artificial intelligence, as these become the main tools for shaping and arbitrating our information spaces online. And so this technology has crept up in all our recent projects pertaining to the internet, and we decided that it as such, it deserves to be put under the spotlight in its own right. The SAFE project aims to develop policy recommendations to safeguard media freedom and freedom of expression when machine learning technologies are deployed. 
The project's thematic areas focus on both content moderation as well as content curation. We'll be delving into content moderation and the dangers it poses for freedom of expression throughout this series. The SAFE project has identified a number of issues, from a lack of transparency to a lack of accountability for the decisions private companies are making, to the collection and use of huge swaths of our data. We'll get into all of this in subsequent episodes, but first, a word about the second topic of concern for the SAFE project, content curation. So the second basket or thematic area that you have referred to relates to content curation. We're going to talk a lot in this podcast about content moderation, but I would love if you can explain what this concern relates to. Yeah. So when we talk about content curation, what we're really looking at is how the use of AI impacts media pluralism online. So in other words, we're looking well, we're trying to look into the black box that is AI to better understand how it affects the way we encounter ideas and information online. So we already know, um, for instance, that on most of the large social media platforms, algorithms are feeding us information that we agree with based on our past behavior and search history. And that um, news that we perhaps dislike or disagree with is being filtered out, narrowing our information space, narrowing what we know through so-called filter bubbles. And this can lead us to a state of intellectual or ideological isolation into what we call echo chambers, um, where we are perhaps overexposed to certain things that we like, certain things that we agree with. And this has a real impact on the way we shape our opinions. It distorts our perception of reality and narrows our information space in a way that can have an impact not only in our online interactions, but really in our daily lives online as well as in the analog world. Well, and it's interesting that you say we know that because I think that's true increasingly. We're learning that what I search on Google and what you search, even if it's the same search terms we're using, we may get different results. What I see on Facebook might be quite different from what my neighbor sees on Facebook. But I don't know that we knew that a short time ago, I, you know, I think the feeling was it was a neutral space. So it's interesting that in quite a short time, we've learned that in fact, that is not the case and that this actually does pose significant problems, as you say, for our own views of the world and also for the world that we create. No, absolutely. And I think that's, fa- that's the fascinating part about working in this area is that it's, it's moving so fast. The technology is moving fast, but the research as well. And while we definitely have a very long way to go, I think it's really admirable to see the amount of research that experts have been sort of dwelling into here and trying to unpack an area that is that is really challenging in terms of, you know, transparency. I think the biggest challenge here still is that the inner workings of these big platforms remain non-transparent. And so we can't really assess the impact that AI might be having here. A study that comes to mind, perhaps interestingly, at one of our expert meetings within the framework of this project, one of the panelists quoted a very interesting study that compared you know, Facebook pages that spread conspiracy theories with those that spread uh, scientific news. And the study analyzed which people and which users were active on these pages, so who was liking and commenting on, on certain things. And what was fascinating is that this study identified that these different groups, 
So the people following the different sort of, whether it be conspiracy theories or the people following the scientific news, that they hardly ever interact online. And the expert, Ingrid Brodnick, um, she explained that on the internet, in theory, other-minded people are just one click away, but that this click is not happening. And we don't really know if this is because of human nature. Do we just not like interacting with people who are not like-minded to us? Or to which extent is this being curated online through these automated decision-making technologies or through artificial intelligence? And so there's a lot of questions that still need to be answered in this, in this area. So with that in mind, what is the next stage for the SAFE project? Well, we have a lot of plans ahead, particularly for this year. Um, and we're focusing on holding several expert-level workshops to deliberate um, the four categories that I've mentioned. So looking into security, hate speech, media pluralism, and surveillance, and the impact that AI has in all of these four categories. And, and the aim is really to develop concrete policy recommendations, but also the sharing of best practices and to build a roadmap for the future. And once that's all done, we also hope to launch a comprehensive resource guide, which uh, we hope will guide researchers and decision makers in this area. And, and I'm, I'm really excited that these steps will be done um, also in partnership with some fantastic NGOs um, with significant expertise in this area. I'm afraid I can't quite announce who they are just yet as we finalize our formal partnerships, but I really look forward to sharing more information on that very soon. Um, I should add that we are in the midst of a global health pandemic, right? And this is sort of unprecedented in, in modern times. And the economic, political, and social consequences are still unfolding. Um, but the seriousness of the crisis has reinforced this need for reliable um, and accurate information that can, that can inform and educate people. The RFOM is also supporting a handful of initiatives, including this podcast series, to shine a spotlight on AI and freedom of expression. These projects will be made available in the coming weeks. It's really a, a wide range of different initiatives, and some of them include things like developing a curriculum for educating young children um, through theory and practice on how certain technologies and their engagement online can influence the way um, they build their opinions, also in the analog world. So I'm really excited to see that one because it also, the curriculum is being developed um, with the input of, of, of the kids um, in this particular school and the teachers. So that's really exciting. We're also supporting different initiatives that are focusing more on sort of the political influence and elections, um, looking at sort of policy and uh, regulatory areas to support easier civil society access to data and effective social media monitoring. So this would include things like technical guidance on how to request API access to certain media, uh, social media sites and how to process and store such data once it's obtained. Another initiative very timely focuses on AI and COVID-19 disinformation. And the aim there is to build knowledge and focused policies on how AI can be harnessed and regulated to better counter disinformation online and to guarantee freedom of expression. It's such a wonderful range of, 
of projects and of outputs. And I think it will be so useful, particularly as these conversations continue to unfold in, in different states, at the regional level, and indeed at the international level. Over the next five episodes, we dig further into these questions. What do we know about content moderation? How far should private companies be allowed to go in censoring our expression? What risks might this pose? And are there better pathways forward? I hope you'll join us. My thanks to Denise Wagner and Nanny Jansen-Reventlow for their insights, and to the OSCE representative on Freedom of the Media for the funding which made this series possible. Dan Rutka wrote and performed the music for this series. For further reading about today's topics and guests, or to leave comments and reflections, go to our website, decodinghatepod.com. I'm your host, Katie Pentney. Thanks for listening.